That is going to be epic. Very great. Well, speaking of epic, we are in Genesis chapter 24, and we see an epic love story. So please open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and our precious servant back here, Lynn, will get one to you. Keep your hand up in the air. As we're moving through the book of Genesis, which is, Genesis means the beginning. And as we lay the foundation for a Christian worldview, later, uh, the, some of the latest surveys that are out say that only 37% of pastors in America have a Christian worldview. That means when they come into the pulpit, if you're looking, for, you move to a new church, I mean a new community, you're going to look for a church, you've got basically a one and three shot of finding a church where the pastor actually believes the word of God. And that's in the pulpit as the preaching pastor. When you go to the youth ministry or the children's ministry, the percentage drops way lower, down to 10% of youth ministries and children's ministries, those workers in those areas. It's not true here. You're blessed with a wonderful pastor and Rob McCoy that has a Christian worldview and our youth ministry and our children's ministry. But it really goes in line with what we're seeing on this video that's going to be showing January 31st. If the church no longer has a Christian worldview, they just are embraced by the culture, the culture war that comes. And so you must know the Word of God. That's why it's important to have the foundation of Genesis. Really, the first 11 chapters, if you understand them thoroughly, you will have a thorough Christian worldview about marriage, about family, about all that God has uh, designed. But here we get to the place that Abraham's 140 years of age. The last chapter, his precious love, Sarah, dies at the age of 127. There are no women who die with their age actually given except Sarah. She's 127. That means that Isaac, because she was, uh, Isaac was born when she was 90 years of age and Abraham was 100. Now, Isaac, it's three years after the death of his mother, and he's 40 years of age, or he's 37 by the time Rebecca shows up. He's going to be 40. He gets married at the age of 40. So if you're single and 40, don't lose heart. Good things are on the way, hopefully, Lord willing. It's a, it's a fascinating thing, isn't it? Those who long to get married and those who are married and long to get out of their marriage. It's kind of a, it's like a screen door. You got flies on the inside trying to get out and flies on the outside trying to get in. People can't figure out what, what they want to do. But the beauty is, is that God's providential hand in this story, it's a long chapter, it's a long narrative. So we're just gonna move through it, learn some beautiful lessons about how God works in the life of a servant of God. Has God moved in your life supernaturally? Has he orchestrated events in such a way that you go, whoa, wow. You just, you humble yourself before the Lord and you just bow in worship because you can't believe God is working in your circumstances as you're praying about these things. All of that unfolds under this, in the life of this nameless servant. At the end of this message, I'll try to put the pieces together because there's a beautiful picture here of our Father in heaven, the Son that needs a bride, and the Holy Spirit, the servant that has went out into the world to draw people to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But we'll get to that in the end. We see in this passage in four big blocks, the command to go get Isaac a bride, the obedience of the servant to go do that, and then the success that God supernaturally brings him right to the right spot to meet this bride. And then fourthly, the completion of the deal that here comes the bride, Isaac and Rebekah are married. Let's pick it up as we see the plan in verses one through four. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac." He calls his oldest servant here. He doesn't give him his name here. Back in chapter 15, we find that Eliezer, who is his head servant, and uh, he was gonna inherit all of Abraham's belongings because he didn't have a son. 
And the Lord said, no, 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 Eliezer is not gonna be your heir. You're gonna have a son that comes from your own body, Isaac. Fast forward all these years, here's Isaac. And Abraham is preparing exactly that, a bride for his son. Like all good fathers and mothers, he really wants his son to marry well. Do you have kids? If you have kids and they're eight years of age, have you ever wondered who they're gonna marry at the age of 30? You're gonna have some grandkids, what's going on? Have you been praying for your children's spouses? Have you been seeking the Lord for your sons and daughters? Because the Bible says not to be unequally yoked. If our children are walking with the Lord, then we want them to marry somebody that's walking with the Lord, right? Then they're equally yoked. I guess if our kids are not walking with the Lord and they marry somebody that's not a believer, then they're equally yoked. They both just are not walking with the Lord. But the Canaanites were uh, extraordinary pagans, if you will. And Abraham's like, my son cannot marry a girl from the neighborhood. Just can't happen. I was talking to a father recently and he's moving to another state that is more conservative because he has daughters and he knows they're at the age, they're going to meet people and they're going to get married. And so he's getting out of Dodge and going to where people think more sanely than the neighborhood here in California. I had a pastor friend that was in a community where I was ministering and the dominant religion of the community was Mormonism. And so when his kids got those preteen ages, he told me, I'm gonna be here for this long and when my kids get this old, I'm moving back to the Bible Belt where people know Jesus. It just shows you, and I'm not saying you have to do that, God can provide the right person, the right uh, boy or girl, man or woman for your child, no matter where you are, he's a big God. But Abraham asked Eliezer, now by the way, Eliezer means comforter, so this fits well with the narrative that will put the pieces together at the end of this message, that the comforter, the spirit of the Lord, is going to go forth. Well, that's the command. But the real problem that Eliezer can see in this whole thing is, well, I can go all the way back there to your hometown, I can see your, your brother's family, I can ask one of the cousins if they wanna come, come marry their cousin, but what if she says, no, what do I do then? Now he has asked him to put his hand under his thigh. Now when we might shake on it, when's the last time you actually put your hand under somebody's uh, intimate spot, right? Put your hand right here, buddy. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, girls invite each other to go to the bathroom. If one of my guy friends says, hey, you wanna go to the bathroom? I don't think so. I don't wanna go to the bathroom with you and you're not gonna put your hand on my thigh, all right, bro? And I also don't like kisses, so don't be giving me any kisses. But it's a Middle Eastern custom, which meant, I mean, this is, a very, <laughs> this is a very important vow or promise. And that is he's gonna put his hand under his thigh and promise, I'm gonna do this, sir. And the imagery is, it's close to your loins. And so the children, if you don't keep your promise, the children that come through my loins will raise up and judge you. So it's a pretty heavy deal. So he's concerned with a way out just in case, I mean, do I have to kidnap the girl, right? What, what do I have to do here? So the problem in verse five and six, and the servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. It's like, I mean, think about it. I'm a stranger. I show up in town and say, hey, I got, my master's son wants a bride. You want to come? I've been looking at your profile on eHarmony.com. You seem to fit all the, you check all the boxes. I mean, what girl is going to get on a camel and travel 500 miles to marry a guy that she's never met? Seems like a practical question, right? So what if that happens? Should, should I take your son back there? He goes, no matter what you do, do not take my son back there because the land of promise, he wants the bride to come to the promised land, not for the groom to go back to the land of his heritage. So the providence, Abraham knows this because he's been walking with God. He's 140 years of age. 
So he's been walking with the Lord as far as we know from the age of 75. And so 40 plus 25, he's been walking with the Lord for 65 years. And he says this about the providence of God in all of this scenario, verse seven, the Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, who spoke to me and swore to me saying, to your descendants, I give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. This is what he wanted to know. What, what's the caveat? What's, what's my way out of this? You'll be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. The God that called me out of Ur of the Chaldees, the God that promised me this land, the God that swore with an oath that this land was gonna be mine and my descendants after me. This God's gonna send his angel in front of you, Eliezer, and God's gonna orchestrate this divine trip for 450 miles back to my homeland, and God's gonna hook this all up. Now, he knows, just because Eliezer needs to know, if she's not willing to come with you, then okay, you're released. No, no harm, no foul. So he promises in verse nine, so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. I promise, I'm gonna do it, sir. He's his faithful servant. Here he's getting a commission, a charge, a command from his master. And he promises that he'll carry it out. In verse 10, we see the provision that he's gonna take back there to impress this young lady. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed for all his master's goods were in his hand. He loads up the caravan. <laughs> he doesn't have the suburban. He's got 10 camels that he loads up with the wealth of Abraham. It's a display. I mean, it's an entourage. You ever going down the freeway and you see these buses going down the road and they're going to some concert or it's some semi-caravan going to some event. And you're like, wow, I wonder what that is. I wonder who, who, who is going to get out of that bus when it parks. Looks like it's pretty fancy. But he is entourage, is camelback. In verse 10, it also goes on to say that the place, in one verse, he traveled 450 miles. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Boom, just get on the camels, we're there. No, it's gonna take him three, four weeks, whatever it takes. The average trip would be 25 miles a day, maybe 40 on a camel, it can make 40 miles. They're traveling machines. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor, that's his, Abraham's brother. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time. The time when women go out to draw water. In the morning and in the evening, in these cultures, the ladies would go out, they'd have a, a jar, they'd fill it up with water, put it up on their shoulder, up on their heads, and they'd walk back to town. The well's outside of the community. And he arrives just in time. Imagine you've just traveled 450 miles. He makes his camels kneel down, the 10 of the camels. And as they all kneel down, the ladies are coming out and he sees them coming from town. Now he has no GPS, he has no map, he has the trade routes and he's arrived at the right destination. But the most important thing about this trip, his obedience is important, but he's really gotta invite the Lord into this situation. He's gotta pray about it. And so the prayer unfolds in verse 12. Then he said, O Lord God of my master, Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master, Abraham. Lord, can you just make this happen? I, I can't do this. And faith is so important and is really bolstered when you're over your head, right? You, you don't know how this is gonna work. I mean, how, honestly, to go to some community and find the girl that is gonna be the girl of your master's son's dreams, how do you pull that off? Honestly, don't, for a moment, just get in this guy's sandals and just think, well, I'm here, <laughs> now what do I do? Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Do we have a beauty contest? Do we start doing interview? What do we do? And so he just prays, Lord, Lord, would you help me? Would you... I know you love my master, and my master has said you're gonna send your angel before me, and so this tells us that Abraham's faith had affected the people in his household. This servant knows God. This servant is following the same God that his master Abraham is because he's seen him work. 
Have you been in situations where you're in over your head and you have to pray about stuff like this? You have no clue. You don't don't know what you're going to do. And it's a great thing when you just humble yourself and you pray and ask God to intervene and then watch what he does. Now, when God works, he works supernaturally natural, meaning that his providence has puts together the timing and the people and the place and all these things. They're divine appointments, and this is definitely a divine appointment. Look at the parameters of his prayer. Because if you're praying for God's help, then you have a criteria. We would say, like the story of Gideon, it's putting out a fleece, or it's putting out, Lord, what, what are the parameters? How would I know? How would I know if this is a girl? Check it out. Behold, verse 13, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let me be, let it be that the young woman to whom I say, so he's, this is the test, this is the litmus test. The young woman uh, to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may ha- drink, and she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. What's his test? The, the girl that I ask, hey, could I have a drink? She's going to have her pitcher of water. Hey, could I have a drink? And she lowers the, the jug and says, here you go. And as she sees his camels and he's taking a drink, he engages her to ask for a drink. But now the parameter is she has to see the camels and go, hey, and I'll draw water for all your camels. Now, this is no easy lift. A camel can drink 30 gallons of water at one time. 30. That's 300 gallons of water. So this young girl is either going to be very industrious, a hard worker. She's going to have to be bored at home. She's got to be beside herself. She's like, well, I got nothing else going on. I guess I'm just going to bucket water to these 30 gallons. Camels are amazing. People are surprised. It used to be a myth because of their humps. You have the two different types of camels. You have the double-humped camels and the single humps. And people used to think that they stored water in their humps. No, it's just like us. They store their water, their hydration, in their incredible vascular system. But it's got a huge capacity to do so. They can go weeks without water or food. Their humps have 80 pounds of fat in them so that it absorbs, the fat turns to the nutrients and the water and everything that they need over those weeks. And then when they uh, rehydrate and they eat, then it goes back into those, in, into those fat deposits. So I don't know why I got nerdy about camels just now, but I just, sometimes you nerd out on things like that. Anyway, I know, inquiring minds, you really wanted to know. So I'm going to go to church tonight and hear about one hump and two hump camels. Anyway, but the reality is, This is going to be the test. He's going to ask a girl, will you give me a drink? And she's got to offer. I'll water all your camels. 300 gallons worth. So, in verse 15, and it happened before he had finished speaking. Well, he he hadn't even finished his prayer. He's praying silently. He's praying that behold Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, this family member specifically, the girl, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin, no man had known her or had sex with her, and she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. Now he hasn't even finished his prayer and here the girl comes. She's beautiful, she's young, she's pure, she's a virgin, and she's coming to do her evening duty of getting some water. So here's the first candidate. Now, he doesn't know that she's a family member. He knows none of this, right? Here's just a pretty girl coming towards him. Verse 17, and the servant ran to meet her, very eager, and said, please, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, drink, my Lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. Now, I think this has to be the weirdest pickup line in world history. Hey, could I have a drink? I was uh, 30 years ago, probably 32 years ago, I was with a friend. He was single, and I'm married, and we were in this restaurant, 
and he had been meditating on this passage. And we sat down at the restaurant and we're talking about that. I said, man, isn't that a great story? And just how God worked and that. And he, he said, I wonder if that'll work. I said, what do, you, what do you mean? And we had been, you know, talking all around the subject. Well, this very cute waitress walks up and he looks at her and he says, would you water my camels? She was seriously offended because I started laughing hysterically and I couldn't believe that he was dumb enough to say, he was, he was really a, a, a prankster and uh, we got really bad service for the rest of our time there in the restaurant because she thought he was, she thought it was some kind of crude, you know, sexual in window or something about camels. And he tried to explain it. She wouldn't listen to it. She's like, just, just shut up. Just stop. <laughs> so, the moral of this story is it's not a good pickup line to throw out there. But granted, the servant did not say, will you water my camels? He said, can I have a drink? And she volunteered willingly to water all of his camels. This providence that takes place, that God brought a guy from 450 miles away at the right time of day with her walking out to get a pitcher of water isn't divine timing, we would say, oh, it's luck or it's happenstance or it's chance. But in this case, we know that the Lord orchestrated and connected all the dots. Isn't it fascinating if you look at your life, being at the right place at the right time, at the right time, uh, in, in that right, being the right person, meeting the right person, how those things come together, especially when it comes to relationships, right? Especially you, you, had no, you didn't plan on meeting this person at this time. There's love in the air around God Speaks staff over these last couple of years. Our staff members are getting married like crazy. Divine appointments are happening. No camels are being watered, but they're still getting married. And people are coming together, whether it's Dewey, who's uh, involved with our facilities team. He meets uh, Kinsey May down at the, the, she's playing out a music thing or setting up some things down at the mall. He walks by and they say something about each other's cowboy boots and boom, sparks fly, who knew, right? Now they're, they're happily married. Dominic, who comes from New Jersey, actually Maine, all the way from Maine, he moves out here, he's hanging out and he meets our lovely Sarah, who's a part of our fellowship and grown up in the church and now they're married and they have a baby at home. We have Garrett who does our announcements and just this last year, Garrett, uh, we were in a staff meeting and I looked at Garrett and I don't do this, I don't get involved with matchmaking, I've, I've determined it's not a productive thing. If it goes south, it's all your fault, so I don't, never have anything to do with it. And, but I just felt prompted and I looked at Garrett and I said, Garrett, I just, I don't know. I think I see Bella and Bella is in your orbit. Now I knew Bella's mom and I knew Bella's sister and I had just met Bella and I, I don't know why, it just seemed like the two would just be great. And he just kind of blew it off and now they'll be married in a month or two. <laughs> After I had talked to him, my wife was in the back room and she was talking to Bella and my wife was just such a mentor and not only raising our kids in the ways of the Lord and praying with our kids about their future spouses, but she looked at Bella and she said, hey, have you been praying for your future spouse? And she goes, I've never even thought of that. And she said, well, you should start praying. And so she started praying for her future spouse. We went on a trip and came back and the two of them are engaged. I'm like, what's going on? It all comes together. In our lives, God's providence to, to bring us together. When I was a young Christian, I had dated Tammy off and on all through high school. We had quite a stormy romance. And we're together, we're not together, we're, we're together, we break up, we're together, we break up, we just go back and forth. And it's been like 42 years since our first date. And, but what happened is I was just a real heathen dog. I was just a bad guy. And, and Tammy was a very sweet girl, but neither one of us knew the Lord. And then I got saved in the summer, or actually in February of 1984. So next month, it'll be 40 years. And I got saved and I'd been walking with the Lord and I was really working on the big things to have God change my life, Right? If I wake up in the morning and I'm not drunk, hungover, have done drugs, or in bed with a strange girl, victory in Jesus. That's like big celebration, right? Because when you come from where I came from, uh, you're just trying to deal with the major issues in your life to try to walk with God. 
and we went, it was the 4th of July, which is for bull riders, I was a bull rider and rodeo cowboy, and Tammy was also uh, involved with rodeo. You call the 4th of July Cowboy Christmas because there's more rodeos during the 4th of July week than at any other time in America. So you can go to rodeo after rodeo after rodeo after rodeo. And so we went to a small uh, town rodeo not far from our home in Buell, Idaho. And I'd missed the entry, and so I wasn't entered in that bull riding. But I was there behind the chutes pulling a bull rope from one of my friends. And I come walking out, and I haven't seen Tammy since I've given my life to Jesus. I haven't seen Tammy. And here, here came Tammy. But she's dating a bull rider that I know. And we walk by, and his name was Dave. I said, hey, Dave. Hey, Tam. And I walked by. I didn't want to make a big deal of it, right? Just try to be, play it cool. Play it cool. No camels involved. No camels. And we walked by. And, uh, I mean, when I saw her, I was just like, now, for the first time I'd seen her, I'm a Christian. And I'm like, that's the girl, man. That's the girl. And the next day, I come back to the rodeo. It's another day. I come back. And I'm with my cousin. Now, my cousin is not walking with Jesus, and he's super lit up. He's, he's drunk, and I'm with him. I'm, I'm the designated driver. I'm sober. My cousin's drunk, and he's trying to hook us up with two very unattractive girls. I hate to say it, but I wasn't going for any of that business. And so I had to get out of the vehicle with him because he's going to end up in jail or with a DUI or with these girls. I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to walk with Jesus. And... So we pull up, and I see Tammy and her best friend, Carlene, and there's no guys around. And I pull up, and I said, hey, you know, Carlene, uh, Tammy, I don't want to be awkward. I know you're going out with Dave, but I need to ride home because they know my cousin really well, <laughs> those two girls. And they go, we get it. I said, I have to be rescued from him. And they're like, okay. And so I get in, and I'm feeling really awkward because Tammy's dating somebody else, but I'm still head over heels in love with her. And I said, hey, you know, I don't want to cause problems with you and Dave. And Tammy had the biggest beaming smile. She's looking at me. She says, oh, I broke up with him last night. <laughs> she said, as soon as I saw you at the rodeo, I just broke off with him. And uh, here we are today. You know, this was the summer of 1984. So all these years later, even though the two of us, when we first met, were not walking with the Lord, God had a divine plan. Being at the right place at the right time, how God puts those things together, and the comfort to know God's working. Here in this plan, the same thing's happening. The servant's there, this thing happens, the young girl's watering all the camels. Now he's pondering in verse 21 man, can it be this easy? Can it really happen like this? And the man wandering, wondering, excuse me, at her, remains silent as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. He's thinking, is this the one? So it was, when the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a gold nose ring, weighing a half a shekel or a half an ounce, and two bracelets for her wrist, weighing 10 shekels of gold or four ounces, and said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Now the servant knew that this is Abraham's family because he had been told what the lineage was. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. <laughs> There's a quote that says, go about your daily life as if your future depends on it, because it might. She was just going out on an average day to get some water and her life is just about ready to change. You hear these stories of all these individuals that things like that happen in the acting industry. Uh, Charlize Theron was in the bank and she couldn't cash this check from a modeling agency out of state from New York and she's struggling financially. She's living here now and an agent uh, sees her, gives her his card, they have a conversation and that whole thing launched her career into what you see today. And it was, she's trying to get a, a check cashed in the bank. 
Mel Gibson's career launched because of the movie Mad Max, but he was not going to try to get a job acting there. He took a friend there because he had been in a fight, so his face was all bruised up, so he didn't want to talk to the casting director. But they saw his bruised up face, and because Mad Max is a crazy thing, they're like, we think this bruised up face is going to work. <laughs> and he gets his big break. You never know when those opportunities are going to come along, especially as a child of God, especially as a Christian. God works through circumstances of those whose lives live by faith in your life and my life. In verse 26, then the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, This is a great line. I've prayed this over and over and over. Please, if you don't have it highlighted, underlined in your Bible, do so. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me. When you start in a direction by faith, God will lead you as you move that direction. Faith is, I don't know if you... This illustration makes sense to you, maybe for some of the men that had an old uh, truck or vehicle back in the day. How many of you have ever driven a vehicle without power steering? Oh, wow, that's impressive, great. So you know what I mean. So when you are driving a vehicle with no power steering, when that vehicle stopped, it is so hard. You ever tried to turn the wheel? What do you have to have? You just have to have some motion and the wheel just turns very easily as long as it's moving. That's the way faith is. People are sitting still, not moving towards whatever you're praying about. And it's like you're not getting in any direction. You have to be in motion. Years ago, I had been ministering in California and Northern California up in San Jose. And the Lord had been ministering in my heart for months that he had a new season. This is the way God works in my life. When he starts, he starts, I I call it, you know, not having your tent stakes too deep because God's going to pull them up and move you. I start sensing this, there's something new on the horizon. So I started praying about it, and I told my wife, and she starts praying about it. And we're praying, and at this, uh, on a trip we were going to take to Idaho on vacation, I was going to speak at this church that I had planted a few years before that, and the pastor hadn't been away, so I was going to preach the three services on a Sunday. And I said, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do, but I have this, like, burden inside that whatever you're going to do, please substantiate it by the mouth of two or three witnesses, that I know exactly what you want me to do. Because I don't know what you're doing. You're just stirring this stuff up inside of me. So I moved that way. We go to do this service. And afterwards, this couple came up and said, hey, I heard you started this church two years ago, and we live 50 miles to the north in Idaho Falls, and we were wondering if you would come start a church there. And because I was like, my ears were perked up, I said, hey, I'll pray about that. They were surprised because they were saying it a little bit tongue-in-cheek with a smile on their face, but I was dead serious. I said, I'll pray about that. They walked away and another couple came up and asked the exact same thing. They walked away and another couple came up and asked the same thing. Four couples in a row, I asked for two or three witnesses and the Lord gave me eight. He's very gracious to stack it up, you know, when you need direction. So we knew that that's what the Lord wanted us to do. But we were in motion. You need to be moving. What's God put in your heart? Start moving that direction. How can you take a step of faith? How can you take a step of faith? How can you take a step of faith? Because it is easier to direct your life in motion than just sitting back. Well, you know, it's like the guy that needs the job. You know, I'm sitting here on the couch eating Cheetos. I guess somebody could call and knock on the door and give me a job. Well, you should be praying and looking. (laughs) You should be moving in in the direction that you want to go. So in verse uh, 29, we meet the player. And I call him the player because you're not going to f- discover that till later. But this guy by the name of Laban, who is Rebecca's brother, this dude is a work of art. And so now Re- Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebecca saying, thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels, and provided straw and feed for the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the feet of the men who were with him. The servant Eliezer has a whole entourage. He has men with him. And Laban sees the nose ring. I mean, nose ring's been around quite a while. (laughs) 
<laughs> so uh, gives her the old nose ring and the bracelets. When Laban sees the gold, we find out later he's quite the gold digger, uh, and he rips off basically his nephew, who is going to be his sister's son, Jacob. Uh, Jacob says he changes his wages 10 times because he keeps trying to rip him off. But he's the one in their culture that is going to be negotiating for his sister to be married. The father, whether he's dead or the father that's alive, the culture was that the brother would step in and take care of that. So now we have the proclamation of the servant. Now he's gonna tell everybody what's going on. He's at the house. Food was set before him to eat in verse 33. But he said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he said, Laban, speak on. Now, he wants to let them know where he's from, what it's all about. So in verse 34, so he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly and has become great. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and male and female servants and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has now my master made me swear. Now the next verses are basically rehearsing what we've already covered, what you already know. And it ends in verse 48. And I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord when he met Rebekah and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. His discipline, his urgency, if you will, as a... Um, obedient servant, we can take a lot of lessons from him in this passage. He hears his master, he thoroughly gets the instructions, he wants to know what to do if it doesn't work out. He wants to be thorough. And when he shows up, he's walking by faith and he's giving this criteria for an answer from the Lord. He's a strong man of faith. And now he won't even eat dinner, he won't even sit down. He's like, I gotta tell you what's going on. There's something called urgency that people that are obedient, people that are conscientious about work and their lives, my wife and I call it the urgent chip. They're a person that when they find out a responsibility immediately, they wanna figure out how to do it. We call it in our family, raising our kids, din and dip, do it now, do it properly. And that's the way we raise our children with that concept. And this guy is Mr. Din and Dip, do it now, do it proper. And as he shares these things, we see this uh, in the scripture in a number of places, he's He's not gonna sit down, he's not gonna eat food until he gets his answer. I gotta have the answer, will she go with me? This is the same thing that we see in Samuel, the prophet. He's told to go to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king. And so he sees the first king, uh, son, Eliab, he like, looks like a king. And then uh, Shammah and uh, Benadab and these three brothers. And he's like, man, these guys look like kings. And the Lord said, no, don't look on the outward, look at the heart. So he goes through all seven brothers and... Samuel's like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna move forward with dinner until we, we find out who the new king is. And he said, well, we got the youngest little twerp out there watching sheep, and it's David. And he goes, well, we're not gonna sit down and eat. We're not gonna eat until David comes in and we can anoint the new king. There's a diligence that people that accomplish things have, a conscientiousness, a faithfulness, and that's what this individual has. He won't even, as I said, he won't even sit down to eat dinner until he shares with them the whole uh, narrative. And then he's gotta persuade them. Will she go with me? Will she marry Isaac, my master's son? In verse 49, now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Because, hey, tell me now if you're gonna let Rebecca come. Because look at all the obstacles. First of all, he had to travel 450 miles. Can he even find the family? Check, he found the family. Then he's gotta find the girl and the family. Check, at the well. Now the brother has to be willing to let her go back. Check, and then she's got to be willing to go. Check. Those are a lot of opportunities for a big fat no, no, from the brother, no from the family, no from Rebecca. So he says in verse 49, now if you, uh, he says, so that I know to turn to the right hand or the left, because I, this seems like God's plan, but if you say no, I'll be blown away because it seems like God just put all these pieces of the puzzle together, but I guess I'll have to turn to the right or the left. Is there any more family members? Because I think she's it. 
his family that he's supposed to be with. Verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, so see Laban and the father, Bethuel, answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go and let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words that he worshiped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. And he's, oh, thank God. You know, just as urgently as he sought the Lord for God to direct him, with the same passion, he comes back to say thank you. You remember the story when Jesus healed the 10 lepers and nine went back, but only one came back to say thank you. And Jesus said, I, weren't there 10 of you guys? And only one of you comes back. You all wanted healing and I healed all 10 of you. And yet only this Samaritan, this Gentile, he, he, he comes back to say thank you. We're always praying for the Lord's direction in our life. If you're sensitive to the Lord and a child of God that wants to walk by faith, but we also need to come back and say, thanks God <laughs> for doing what you did. And here he worships the Lord. Now he pulls out the presents. Once Rebecca, as, you know, she's on board, the, the father and the son, uh, Laban and Bethuel say, yeah, we're, we give our permission. In verse 53, then the servant brought out jewelry uh, of silver, jewelry of gold, and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. So he, now he brings out the presence, but he doesn't bring out the presence until the agreement is made. This is a, a great picture of what the Holy Spirit does in our life. When we agree to be the bride of Christ, to believe in Jesus, then the Holy Spirit gives us the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he wants us to have, just as we see in this illustration. Then the persistence in verse 20, 54, then they arose in the morning and he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least 10 after that she may go. And he said to them, do not hinder me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. He's so diligent, he's so persistent. He's just traveled maybe a month to get there and he wakes up in the morning, bright and early, bushy-tailed, ready to go. He's like, I'm going back, let's go. Come on, gotta get Rebecca back to my master. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. Our daughter's gonna leave. Now you know in that day, if, you're, if your daughter moves away 450 miles back in that ancient day, you're probably never gonna see her again in your life. Right, that's just the way life worked back then. You move away, if you were on the East Coast back in you know, 1920 or something and you moved to the West Coast, you may not go back on the train let alone riding camels back and forth. So they said, oh, we want her to stick around for 10 days. And he's like, don't slow me down. His diligence, once again, is I gotta, I gotta, I gotta bring back the bride. I gotta bring this bride to Isaac. There's an urgency, there's a persistence in this servant of the Lord. And by the way, I mean, this guy is just an employee, if you will, of Abraham, if you are a, a, a owner or a manager, you want a whole fleet of guys like this. You want a whole crew. These are the kind of people that you want working for you. And having had a lot of people over the years work for me, it doesn't always work out this way. And, uh, and so those who are uh, wise, they hear what you want and they apply it. Basically, you're gonna have three people that work for you. If you're an employer, I don't know why I'm sharing this with you. It's kind of a leadership thing I do. But there's three types of people. There's wise people, there's foolish people, and there's evil people. These people are at every single office if it has more than 15 people. And that is, the wise person hears what is asked of them, and they just do it. They just carry it out. They do it diligently. They do it now. They do it properly. Boom. And if you're a wise person and you give instructions to somebody, you expect them to carry it out because that's what you would do. You're a wise person. You do it now. You do it proper. But then you have the foolish person. They hear what you say and they just never seem to get it done. Like a week later, you come and ask and they never get it done. And you talk to them until you're blue in the face and you've talked to them now two, now three, now four times. And you're, trying to, you're looking at it. It's not, like, I know that they have an IQ. I know that they understand what I'm asking, but they're just foolish they're foolish in that they do not apply what they're being asked to do. So with foolish people, you just stop talking. You give them, <laughs> you give them deadlines and consequences. You give them parameters, and I'm done talking with you. This is, if you do these things, 
then this is what's going to happen. And if you don't do these things, this is what's going to happen. And then you have the evil person that once you've corrected them once or twice, they storm out. And they're the kind of people that might come back and go postal on you. They try to destroy you on social media. If anybody's ever let you go and you go on social media and try to destroy them, Somebody has said the only thing you can do with evil people is guns, knives, and lawyers. Defend yourself (laughs) because they're out there. In this story of a servant, never take for granted a person that just shows up on time, does what they're asked to do, and are such a blessing. That's what this kind of servant is. And he can't wait to get back to his master. He had great success. God has prospered his journey. And now we see the permission in verse 57 because the last one that we haven't heard speak about being willing to go is the bride herself. The bride herself. Verse 57, so they said, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they went, sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. I will go. Now they're sent out. I'm gonna go. It's like one day I met this guy. Think about it, ladies. At sundown last night, sundown, you met a stranger and you watered his camels. You have a meal, you find out that God divinely has sent this servant there. At breakfast, you're loaded up and you're never gonna see your family again. Rebecca never sees Laban again. She never sees Bethuel. She never sees Milcah. She never sees her family again. She sends Jacob back to hang out with them and to have Laban's daughter, Rachel and Leah, who are two of the daughters that he ends up marrying down the road here, But you met a guy last night. Now, we're always a little concerned, especially as parents, when there's a little bit of a a, uh, whirlwind romance for your children. Now, my son's a planner, planned it all out, got married. But my daughter, she's spontaneous, falls in love. She had her parameters. The Lord's laid on my heart. I'm going to marry somebody from out of state, from outside of our church, and I'm going to meet him, and we're just going to be married. And one day we'll be married on at uh, sunset on the beach. Well, she's a praying machine, my little girl. She prayed the guy up, he showed up from Florida, met her, they had this whirlwind like online thing after they met and my wife and I was at church a Wednesday night and he shows up in town because he was visiting a friend in town and I met him and I'm like, man, this is such a fine young man. Looks like he walked out of a GQ kind of magazine and he's a Christian and, and uh, I go home that night and it's Wednesday night and I said, hey, Tam, did you meet Christian? And she's like, I did meet him. Isn't he a handsome young man? I said, I know. Isn't that weird that just the way he showed up? And, and then a few minutes that we're talking at, at home after church service, and my daughter comes running in, and she's like, we're going to play Ultimate Frisbee. It's the summertime. We're going to go play Ultimate Frisbee. And my wife and I look at her and said, who's going? She goes, oh, that new kid. <laughs> and, and one thing led to another, and just in a few weeks, we knew they were getting married. It's like, holy cow, it was going to be fast. My daughter, Jess, she says, at least I probably should go back to Florida and meet his parents. They go back to Florida. Now, they're just going to meet her parents. But she calls you know, we're here in Florida, we want to get married this week, so you guys, we're going to get married on the beach at sunset at uh, Captiva Beach on Sanibel Island, and boom, and we knew this is is the way our daughter is, this is the way she rolls. We're like, honey, no family is going to be there, I mean, mom and I can get there, and she's like, doesn't matter, this is what we're doing. And so I do this wedding on the beach, and it's like a It's like a a photo shoot that's out of a magazine. It's in this beautiful place. It's on the beach. And both my son and, uh, and, I mean, my son-in-law and my daughter, they look like they're models. They're just stinking gorgeous. And and there's this sailboat, like it's a prop, you know, just sailing on on the horizon. Like it was all just mapped out. And my daughter just threw it all. She just got this childlike face. She's like, yeah. This is what God put on my heart. This is what we prayed. This, here we are. I do. (laughs) But we were concerned. Now, my son was seriously troubled. My son was seriously troubled. He got mad at the parents. He's like, what are you doing? This is his little sister. 
It's your job to protect her. You don't know this guy. I haven't vetted him. I haven't done a deep dive FBI research backtrack. You know, it's like, what are you doing? I said, hey, son, you know, your mom and I, we've been praying for this kid for 20 years since you guys are just kids. And when he showed up, mom and I just, we just knew it was the Lord. Well, I don't know us. Well, you're not the parent, blah, 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 blah. We have this whole conversation. My my boy treated his brother-in-law unkindly for the first six months because he had swooped in and stole his little sister without his permission. Mom and dad had given permission, but he had not given his permission. Now they're super tight, but it's been 15 years, a lot of water under the bridge. It's all good. But imagine you meet a stranger at sundown, and you leave at breakfast, and you're going to travel 500 miles and be married to a man you don't know what he looks like, ladies. You don't know what he looks like. Isn't that terrifying? You don't know what he looks like. You don't know what he smells like. You don't know if he's got all his teeth. You don't know if he's nice. You don't know if he's funny. You don't know if he's got a nice smile. You don't know if he's kind. You don't know if he's hard. You don't know anything except Rebecca knows the hand of God. Like God's in this. God's in this. God's in this. Faith moves according to a different set of parameters oftentimes in how God moves. This sense of peace, like, it just seems right. Seems right to me and the Holy Spirit of what's going on as we navigate this. Well, the prestige, they send her out with this tremendous blessing. In verse 60, they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebecca and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebecca and departed. Do you think that blessing worked, you guys? Would the Jewish people, everybody comes through Isaac. The 12 tribes are from Jacob. And depending on how strict you want to be with the Jewish population in the world right now, uh, in the most strict sense, there's about 15 million Jews. In the broader sense, and this is according to Jewish, they have customs and, and ways to, if you want to relocate and you have Jewish blood or heritage, uh, you can repatriate, you can come to Israel. And so that broadens it to about 21 million Jews in the world today. 21 million from this one mama. This one woman came 20 million. Now, Hitler did his best because he lowered that number by 6 million. So without him doing what he did, it would have been like 27 million, right? Because those people would have propagated the blessing here, you guys, is just not some uh, flippant words for your family. You, as a child of God, can bring a blessing to your sons and daughters, to bless your sons and daughters, for them to be a blessing and to be mother of thousands, if you will, as they lay this out, which is a very ancient custom to be blessed with a large family so she has maids, her nurse that, you know, was uh, basically brought her into the world, like her nanny, they all go with them. And now we end in the completion, which is prosperity. To prosper in something means whatever you've endeavored in is successful. You were able to bring it to completion. So the prosperity of this is to see the wedding, the man and the woman come together, because the whole story has been about that. So meanwhile, while all that's going on 450 miles away, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Isaac came from the way of Bear Lahai Roy. By the way, that's a great name for a well, Bear Lahai Roy, because it literally means the God who sees you. The God who sees you. Bear Lahai Roy. This whole story is about God seeing Abraham's desire, seeing Isaac's desire, seeing Rebekah's desire, and bringing all those desires together. I want you to know that God sees you tonight. He sees the difficulties of your life, the challenges at work, your relational struggles, the sin that you're struggling with, the darkness, the light, the joy, the tears, the laughter. God sees you. He sees you in an intimate way. And Isaac is hanging out with the God who sees him. Ber Lahai literally means the well of the living one who sees me. For he dwelt in the south, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. 
Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. This word dismounted in other places is translated she fall. Like she sees him. It's like a rom-com, basically a, you know, a romantic comedy. She falls off her camel. She's, who's this in the field? She falls off. Very uh, ungraceful. For she had said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother's Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. There's a special comfort in the feminine that was missing for the last three years since his mom passed away, that now he obviously is not trying to marry somebody. I didn't want to marry my mother, but there's something special in your relationship with your wife that is a, of the feminine, um, that which is missing in me. Everything in Tammy is missing in me, and everything in me is missing in her. And so when the two of us are, are together and being together for so long, this picture of who is Isaac. Isaac's a quiet guy. Isaac's not a big figure in the scripture. He's pretty quiet. He's just out in the field. He's meditating on the Lord. Maybe he's been praying for the last month to see this bride come back to him. He's waiting for her, and then he sees the camels coming, and he's got to be giddy and have butterflies inside because he's never met this girl. And you think about it, She's a stranger, he's a stranger, and they're just going to go into a tent. And as they consummate the marriage in sexual intimacy, that is their wedding. That's it. And they don't even know each other. In the culture, parents arranged marriages, and then the kids learned how to love each other. Here, we fall in love and then learn how not to love each other. So before you're too hard on them, just ask yourself, is our way working that great? Right? So as all of this comes together, it tells us in uh, chapter 25, verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife. So he was 40 years of age when he got married. He is definitely in Israel, probably the most eligible bachelor. And uh, he doesn't have, have to have his own bachelor TV show because he's got the Holy Spirit to go out and get a bride and bring her back, and she's the right one for their marriage to work. Even you can have a divine love story, a divinely orchestrated marriage and love story like this, and yet they still have a lot of challenges in their relationship in the future. We still live in a fallen world. You can say, God brought us all together, and I sincerely believe that. But it doesn't mean in this fallen world you're not going to have ups and downs and the good, the bad, and the ugly of relationships. And Rebecca and Isaac are going to have a very strained marriage over their two twin boys that are on the way because they both pick a favorite. And when parents pick a favorite and pit them against each other, you're going to have some serious problems. And that's what takes place. As I said, there is a father in heaven who wants a bride for his son. And he sent out the Holy Spirit to draw us to himself. And the Holy Spirit is the one that comes into our life to be with us, to convict us of sin, to draw us to his son. And when you and I surrender our life to Jesus, we're, joined, we're becoming the bride of Christ. Corporately, each of us as individuals are coming. And then when we choose to come into a relationship with him, he gives us gifts of the Holy Spirit, even as the servant gave gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the last time we saw Isaac from this time in the field, here now the, the bride and the Christ are coming together, which is a future marriage supper of the Lamb that we see in Revelation chapter 19. But the last time we saw Isaac, Isaac was being offered on the place Mount Moriah, where Jesus was offered and basically also figuratively resurrected from the dead. So in the future, we are going to be coming together as the bride of Christ with our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. Ladies oftentimes have a hard time when we're teaching through passages that talk about submission and this and that. And I'm like, hey, if I have to be called a bride of Christ, get over it, all right? I'm a man, and yet I have to have this distinction. That's who I am as a believer in Jesus, as we are corporately. So, as the Lord divinely orchestrated, divinely led, and directed this servant into the will of God, God's Spirit, 
wants to divinely direct you in this coming year. Invite him by faith into every circumstance and watch how God leads you. And then when he leads you and prospers the deepest desires of your heart, come back and say, thank you, Jesus, and praise his name for his goodness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for this wonderful portion of scripture. Pray that you would strengthen us by faith as each one of us are walking and trusting you to divinely orchestrate the issues in our life. Lord, I pray for those who are right now, they're, they're really struggling with some specific direction. And I pray that your spirit tonight wants to encourage them and wants to lead them as they're in motion towards that end. So we're just in prayer. If, if you're in a place where you're just really praying for some direction in your life, whether to go to the right or the left or to do this or that, we don't know what the details are and it's not important for us, but I just want to pray for you specifically because you're kind of in the shoes right now of this servant. Just stand up right where you're at and we're going to pray for you that God gives you divine direction. God bless you guys. The Lord's going to lead you. He's going to show you as you move forward by faith. God bless you guys all over the room. He's got a plan. He's, he's directing your heart. He's going to ask him to bring these divine appointments, the criteria for what your soul needs in this future season of your life. Lord, I just pray for the men and women that are standing right now. And Lord, we are just asking for your Holy Spirit to lead, to send your angel before them to show them where to, uh, how to travel, where to journey, how to, who to talk to, how to interact with those relationships and those situations. And Lord, give them divine direction. Sometimes we're just sitting still, Lord, and you want us just to take a step of faith. Show us what that first step is for each one of these people, Lord. Just show them the one thing that they can step out and take action and to be led and directed by your spirit. And we want to thank you in advance for how you're going to do that, Lord. We ask by your spirit, for your blessing upon your people in your name. Amen. Let's stand together with those who are standing. After this closing song, I just want you to know the prayer team's down here. They can further minister to you and pray for you, whatever those needs are in your heart and your life. May the Lord keep you in his grace. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you his, his peace and his direction for your life as you walk with him this week.